This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Stu does America. Well, we start by doing the cloud. Yes, the cloud. You know that fancy thing, not the ones in the skies. Not the ones raining down on Texas right now and flooding everything. Not the ones influenced by evil global warming. I'm talking about the cloud. The cloud where all of your data lives. And it's an interesting time to be alive because we, first of all, just gave all of our time and freedom up to our devices. We're like, ah! Let's not really talk about this. Let's just be on these things for like eight hours a day and see how it goes. How is society going to change? Let's find out. And then we were thinking, you know, if we're going to take all of our pictures and live every life through our phones, why not give all of that to the cloud and let it live somewhere not on our device that someone can hack into or otherwise abuse? Let's see how that works out. And so far, it's going great. I think you can understand. There's a story in the New York Times today that gives uh, an extreme example of a road we may all be considering very, very soon. It's a bit of a dark road, but it is one that you should really think about now before it's too late. You don't want to be like this guy. Okay, this is a story of a guy in San Francisco. Let me tell you what happened. This is according to The New York Times. It was a Friday night, February 2021. His wife called an advice nurse at their health care provider to schedule an emergency consultation for the next morning by video because it was Saturday and there was a pandemic going on. The nurse said to send photos to the doctor so they could review them in advance. Seems like a normal thing. Well, the, the details of the photos are, are a bit important. You see, this is a dad. He's a stay-at-home dad. And he has a, a son. And his son had, let's say, a rash in a sensitive place. Now, if you're a parent, you've probably dealt with such things before. In normal circumstances, you'd bring them to maybe the urgent care or you might bring them to the doctor. Well, this is February 2021 in California, mind you. So like we are in full fledged lockdown (laughs) like this. There's not I mean, Texas, we were going out to like the movies uh, and we were eating indoors in California. You know, this is like full lockdown time. So no one's doing much of anything for any reason. So they schedule an understandable telehealth appointment. This is, you know, hopefully not a big deal. The nurse suggests, hey, send us some photos of the area. You know, I know you're taking pictures down there, but like I'm a doctor. Trust me. A lot of people say that and don't mean it. Uh, If you meet someone on the street um, on the corner and they say, I'm a doctor, trust me, don't believe them. But this was an actual doctor. And so they asked for these uh, photos to come in. Well, How did this work out? With help from the photos, the doctor diagnosed the issue and prescribed antibiotics, which quickly cleared it up. Oh, okay, perfect. But the episode left Mark with a much larger problem. Uh Uh-oh. One that would cost him more than a decade of contacts, emails, and photos, and make him a target of a police investigation. Mark, who asked to be identified only by his first name for fear of potential reputational harm, had been caught in an algorithmic net designed to snare people exchanging child sexual abuse material. Now, he had a Gmail account. All of his stuff was uh, located with Google. And what happened was when he took the photo, yes, he sent it to 
uh, to his doctor, but it also got uploaded to the cloud. Now, if you happen to be uh, you know, a person who's living in the in the century, you probably have some photo backup service that goes through the cloud. Most people have it. If you have an iPhone, it just kind of does it automatically. Like I know when a picture is taken on my iPhone, later on it'll be on my uh, photo app on on my Mac, and that's going through the cloud, and that's how I'm getting it there. Um, well, Google said, "Holy crap! This guy's sending out child porn." Now, somewhat understandable, right? There, it's a close up of a kid's area. And why else would you be sending that? I can understand the worst thoughts going through your mind, but of course there's an explanation to this. That didn't stop Google from acting. Two days after taking photos of his son, Mark's phone made a blooping notification noise. His account had been disabled for harmful content that was, quote, a severe violation of Google's policies and might be illegal. Uh-oh. Uh, at first, he thought, what the heck's going on? Then he said, oh, okay, crap, it's those pictures. They probably think it's child porn. While all this is going on, he discovered the domino effect of Google's rejection. Not only did he lose emails, contact information for friends and former colleagues, and documentation of his son's first years of life. He also lost his Google Fi account, meaning he had to get a new phone number with another carrier. Without access to his old phone number and email address, he couldn't get the security codes he needed to sign into the other internet accounts, locking him out of much of his digital life. Now, Google basically scanned all his photos. If you have a Google phone, that's what they're doing. I know Apple has something else, uh, something similar that they do, scanning for explicit content and trying to block the worst of the worst. Now, there's some sense to this, of course. We all understand this. We all want child porn to go away, but this got a little bit out of control. Uh, child advocates say the company's cooperation is essential to combat the rampant online spread of sexual abuse imagery, but it can entail appearing into private archives such as digital photo albums and intrusion users may not expect that has cast innocent behavior in a sinister light in at least two cases. Now, look, we can all kind of look at the situation like this and say, okay, Yes, this is bad. This this poor dad got kind of uh, caught up in this ridiculous uh, story. It was a mistake, but it's an understandable one, right? We're trying to stop child porn. They they see a picture like that. They think that's what they're looking at. I, kind of an understandable initial mistake, right? So obviously he appealed. How did that go? He filled out a form requesting a, a review of Google's decision explaining his son's infection. At the same time, he discovered the domino effect of Google's rejection. He lost all that stuff. All that stuff got locked out of his digital life. Now, Google's response after this, because they rejected his uh, appeal. They rejected it. They said, no, we don't, we don't believe you, basically. Now, he's got the doctor he knows about uh, so far. In the statement, Google said child sexual abuse material is abhorrent and we're committed to preventing the spread of it on our platforms. A few days after Mark filed the appeal, Google responded that it would not reinstate the account with no further explanation. How many times have we heard this? Now, I think people would, get, would be a little bit more open to these quote-unquote mistakes if reasons were given. It's constantly these boilerplate responses that say, hey, this, it could be any one of these 12 reasons, and they never tell you why or specifically what you did wrong. Now, uh, that's not all, because... You'd think this is already a frustrating situation for this poor dad who, by all accounts, seemed to do nothing wrong. 
it gets much, much worse. In December 2021, Mark received a manila envelope in the mail from the San Francisco Police Department. It contained a letter informing him that he had been investigated, as well as copies of the search warrants served on Google and his Internet service provider. An investigator whose contact information was provided had asked for everything in Mark's Google account. His Internet searches, his location history, his messages and any document, photo and video he had stored with the company. Think about all the stuff you're putting in the cloud financial details, private messages, uh, things that maybe you don't want to know, people to know that you're searching for. I don't know what weird stuff you're doing at home. I mean, I just assume you watch this show, you got to be kind of screwed up in some way. Whatever you're doing, they've got access to it, right? That's a problem. Uh, Google's perspective, I guess, is pretty simple. From Google's perspective, it's easier to just deny these people from the use of their services, she speculated. This is one of the experts. Otherwise, the company would have to resolve more difficult questions about what's appropriate behavior with kids and then what's appropriate to photograph or not. So where does all of this stand now? Mark still has hope he can get his information back. The San Francisco police have the contents of his Google account preserved on a thumb drive. Mark now is trying to get a copy. A police spokesman said the department is eager to help him. This is why this is so screwed up. It seems to be so very clear, yet this guy still has his life digitally destroyed. Look, the truth is, it's probably pretty unlikely you're going to take similar types of photos. But that's just a small part of the story. If you're using these cloud services, you are putting your entire digital life in the hands of these companies. Do you like these companies? Do they typically treat you well? And increasingly, you're putting your entire actual life with these companies. What is more valuable to a parent than photos and videos of the formative years of their child's lives? And Google isn't letting a father access them? What about his documents, his business contacts, his uh, contracts, his financial statements? Who knows what the heck he had uploaded there? And now it's all gone. And while you can kind of understand how this initially happened, obviously we want to stop child porn. But even after the doctor, the police, an expert from the University of North Carolina who's mentioned in the article, and the New York freaking Times calling Google, they all came along to confirm that this was not a crime, and still, Google will not give this guy back his data. How is this possible? We spend a lot of time complaining about the suspension of Twitter accounts and shadow bans on Facebook, but imagine those policies that we all hate here on the right spread to everything you do in your personal accounts, your banking accounts, your personal email accounts, everything. Now, think about how this can be weaponized not against something horrible like child porn, but for something that many on the left think is much, much worse, your support of the Constitution, your opposition to ESG standards, your supporting some candidate that the media says is unacceptable. Who knows what it could be? Get ready to be a living version of the Canadian truckers or worse. This is one of the reasons why I'm so emphatically a supporter of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other cryptocurrencies. There is a race going on here between a path to freedom and the left trying to trap you in their systems. And frankly, right now, we're losing that battle. Think about what you store in the cloud. It's hard to completely avoid it, but I would limit it to things you wouldn't mind losing. And make sure you back stuff up on local drives that aren't constantly connected to the Internet. If things shake out of control, I can assure you the line is not going to be questionable photos. The line is going to move a lot. 
into politics and the environment and pronouns and CRT and who knows what else. And when that line moves, you best be prepared because I I guarantee you, you're going to be on the wrong side of it. You might occasionally go on a social media app and find things that you really like. I mean, there's a lot of content out there that's enjoyable. Like, for example, a little show called Stu Does America, available everywhere you get your social media. And after going through the stuff for this segment today, maybe this should be the only thing you follow. Uh, Maybe you should turn everything else off. Um, But, of course, selfishly, I'd love for you to follow us. And I think there is a lot of value of course, on following content that you enjoy and get something out of. Uh, You know, I have an account on Instagram that you can follow, Studios America, and I have an account, a private account that I use, you know, really just for, you know, following food accounts. Now, you might know this about me. I uh, happen to be America's only conservative vegetarian. So I, one of the things I do with my little personal Instagram account is I follow a bunch of food places that are, you know, in my area because I want to see them post food so I can just get a little bit fatter for, to do the show every day. I don't want to be a thin host. People hate thin hosts. They hate them. So what's funny about that, though, is that there's a new feature, I think it's pretty new at least, where they're recommending all these pages for you on Instagram. And of course, this has been around on social media for a long time. I don't follow a particular account, but they say, hey, I see that you follow this account and this account and this account. You'd probably like content from this person. And you just realize like how dumb some of these algorithms are at times. I mean, because I follow vegetarian food places, they basically think I'm a female communist. Now, you might say, wait a minute, you know, I, I watch your show every day and you kind of seem like a female communist. And I can understand that point of view. Uh, but it's funny because I really don't need to hear the communist views of uh, some lady who also happens to be a vegetarian in San Francisco. Not really, uh, not really one of my priorities. Uh, in fact, some of these, I will say, some of these algorithms that, that serve ads uh, to you are so, so bad. It's hard to even imagine. Let me give you this one. This was served to me today on my Twitter account, and I had to pull it to you just to show you how stupid some of this stuff is. It is a, an ad from the New York Times. Now, first of all, I'm not a huge fan of the New York Times, so that's number one, okay? This is the ad that it says. It says, on my first night wearing the jacket, I I had only to strut a few blocks in Soho before running into a one-time hinge date. Andre Wheeler writes of his Yeezy Gap jacket, you look rich, he said. Now, let me go through this (laughs) bit by bit to just show you. I don't like the New York Times. Um, I don't live in an area that's, generally speaking, cold enough to wear jackets. Uh, I have never in my life, I've not taken one step that is part of a strut in my entire existence. Uh, Walking a few blocks sounds terrible to me. I never go to Soho. I don't live anywhere near Soho. I uh, have never been on Hinge. Pretty much no one has ever wanted to date me in my entire life. I've never dated a dude. I've never dated a a dude named Andre. And in my worst nightmares, I would never think to purchase a Yeezy Gap jacket, nor do I want to look rich. Literally every single part of this ad is something that I would despise or just find generally uh, unlikable. And yet they're like, well, you know who's going to like that? Stu. He's got to get that Yeezy Gap jacket. I mean, 
at times I go back and forth between big tech being this overarching evil enemy that's going to control all of our lives to how incompetent and terrible are these people? I mean, the New York Times spent money to serve me that. This is where we are in our society. There's been a bunch of um, testimony, uh, this, uh, most recently from the head of Instagram, talking about the effects of social media and all these big tech companies on kids and your family. And I, this is something I find to be you know, really personal and important um, because I got a couple of young kids and they're just young enough where they're not really, they, you know, they're not really going to the worst of the internet yet. Uh, but as we all know, this is uh, around the corner for every single uh, child at some point. And so you want to do your best uh, to try to control that experience for at least as long as you can. You can't control it forever. All you can do is build a foundation and hope your kids don't uh, don't become train wrecks. It's kind of all you can do. Um, let me give you some of this uh, testimony here. Uh, one of the big things Instagram is being uh, charged with is, is this even a safe experience for kids? I will tell you, I don't think it is, uh, but this is what Instagram had to say about it. As the head of Instagram, it's my responsibility to do all I can to keep people safe. I've been committed to that for years, and I'm going to continue to do so. Whether or not we invest more than every other company or not doesn't really matter for any individual. If any, if any individual harms themselves or has a negative experience on our platform, that's something that I take incredibly seriously. No, I mean, he was very, uh, his, he was a little verklempt, as they say, uh, with his voice there. And, I, you know, is this true? I mean, I don't think, look, people, generally speaking, of course, have some empathy, I think, for people who might have a bad experience at their place. But, you know, Instagram's made a lot of decisions, along with uh, their parent company now called Meta, uh, that don't seem to indicate that safety is the highest priority for uh, their users. In fact, the best thing they could probably do is just unplug the website and never have it come on again. That's one idea, throwing it out there. Uh, that might be the safest thing that they could do. Surgeon General uh, has talked about this with social media. Uh, they have a, uh, something that came out, it's called Parenting uh, Youth Mental Health, uh, Protecting Youth Mental Health, the U.S. Surgeon General's advisory. Here's how it reads. We, when, not deployed, when not deployed responsibly and safely, these tools can pit us against each other, reinforce negative behaviors like bullying and inclusion, and undermine the safe and supportive environments young people need and deserve. Um, Masseri uh, was there as well talking about what he thinks would be a good solution for all of this. Watch. We believe there should be an industry body that will determine the best practices when it comes to what I think are the three most important questions with regards to youth safety. How to verify age, how to build age-appropriate experiences, and how to build parental controls. The body should receive input from civil society, from parents, and from regulators. The standards need to be high, and the protections universal. And I believe that companies like ours should have to earn some of their Section 230 protections by adhering to those standards. <laughs> you could see the pressure on these guys, because uh, now they're basically, yeah, we should. let me give you all the rules you should put on us so we can continue to make all of our cash. Um, there was a back and forth as well about... Um, Instagram kids. Now, Instagram kids was this idea. That, you know, there's like a YouTube kids. If you have kids that are young, you, you may use some of these services. Uh, there's YouTube kids that's supposed to, you know, basically filter out the bad stuff so kids can watch YouTube without being recommend, you know, recommended like terrible, terrible things that they shouldn't be seeing. Um, rich, you know, and I think there's a, there's a risk here. 
uh, when we talk about politicians grilling uh, social media executives. And I want to be completely honest about this. I, I am really concerned about these issues when it comes to social media and big tech. I also don't particularly like uh, this sort of theater that we put together where we have senators come up and I'm going to finger wag and I'm going to tell you that you're really bad and I'm going to do lots of things because I think it's important. Like some of it to me just strikes me so inauthentic. Now, Richard Blumenthal is famously inauthentic. Uh, here he is, though, talking about Instagram kids. Uh, will you commit to make the pause on Instagram kids permanent? In other words, stop developing site for an app for children under 13. Senator, the idea of building a version of Instagram for 10 to 12 year olds was trying to solve a problem. The idea being that we know that 10 to 12 year olds are online, they want to use platforms like Instagram, and it's difficult for companies like ours to verify age for those that are so young they don't yet have an ID. The hope was to always or the plan was to always make sure that no child between 10 and 12 had access to any version of Instagram, even one that was designed for them without their parents' consent. So, and like, look, I, I have some sympathy for that argument, honestly. I mean, you're right, of course, people get online and it would be great. I mean, YouTube Kids is considerably better than regular YouTube for kids. <laughs> you know, they take away most of the bad stuff. It's not perfect, but it's better. Uh, obviously, best case scenario, you don't have your kids on YouTube at all. But, you know, they tend to find their way there and it's difficult to control. And that's kind of what I want to get into here in a minute. Um, but what Instagram seems to do, particularly with young people and not even just kids, but teenagers and even young adults, is to continually drive them to terrible, terrible content that will keep them on the service longer and longer. And that's the problem here is the is the uh, the priorities of these companies don't seem to have anything to do with safety or health. It has to do with keeping people's eyeballs on these screens until the end of time. Here is uh, Blumenthal uh, going on about um, some of the research the Senate was doing here in preparation for this particular uh, hearing. We have a team account. With all the protections on the filters. We searched, quote, slit wrists, and the results, I don't feel I can describe in this hearing room. They are so graphic. That's within the past couple of days. I described to you an account that looked at, in effect, eating disorders and attracted the same deluge of self-harm and anorexia coaches. Uh, if at the top of your resume is the term anorexia coach, you, you're doing life wrong. Just in case you were wondering, you need to kind of you need to kind of change directions in your existence. Um, but it's true. This stuff is all out there and being targeted at young people. A lot of times, not even if you don't search directly for it, you're able to make your way to this content. Um, TikTok had a, a story come out about them where they went in and, and, and um, analyzed their algorithm. And of course, most of these algorithms, as we point out, some of them are really stupid. Uh, some of them uh, do the basics, right? Like if you like, um, another thing Instagram thinks about me is that I'm Canadian. Now, as you may know, I'm a Canadian sports hero, Canadian sports celebrity. Um, but I also like the Toronto Blue Jays. And uh, because I like Blue Jays content, they're constantly serving me things about Canada. Now, I, have, I don't go to Canada often. I like the Blue Jays. That's it. 
Um, so some of it's just that. Okay, this guy likes the Blue Jays. He probably liked this restaurant in Toronto. Okay, I get it. I mean, you know, okay, fine. Um, but it goes further than that. Like, for example, on TikTok, which I thankfully do not have account, an account on, um, they will recommend videos, and they get obviously good enough to recognize what kind of content you, that you want. But instead of serving that content to you right away, over and over and over again, because that's what you're looking for, they will intentionally serve up content that you're not looking for, that they think you might also like, uh, to before they give you the stuff that you do want. Why? Why would you do that? Well, they figure if you keep, they keep serving you the t- same types of videos, you're going to get bored and turn it off. And if they give you six videos in a row you don't really like that much, the seventh one they know you're going to like... Well, you can you get in a pattern of, of scrolling and scrolling and scrolling more often, and you're on the site for seven videos instead of one. And that's the problem here. This is an economy. There's a, a podcast out today um, from the New York Times, the Daily, that uh, talks about a site where people are encouraged to commit suicide, to figure out how to do it, what methods to do it. Uh, and they had to go track down you know, through all sorts of hacked documents and everything else just to find out who owns the thing. There's so much stuff out there. Um, Blumenthal went back at um, uh, the uh, head of Instagram and tried to just lock him down on uh, where we are in this back and forth between big tech and big government. And I keep bringing up Blumenthal for a reason here. Watch this quote. I believe that the time for self-policing and self-regulation is over. Some of the big tech companies have said, trust us. That seems to be what Instagram is saying in your testimony. But self-policing depends on trust. The trust is gone. Now, you might expect a Democratic government official to be promoting the idea that they're going to control a big company. I mean, that's not exactly out of the realm of the normal day of Richard Blumenthal. But let me also give you Marsha Blackburn, who is not someone who's looking to control uh, every company that she can get her hands on. Look what she said. Mr. Masseri, we are telling you children have inflicted self-harm. They are getting information that is destroying their young lives. And we are asking you, have some empathy and take some responsibility. And it seems as if you just can't get on that path. So we are going to continue to work on this issue. You see this even from conservatives who don't necessarily uh, immediately react with government control every time there's a problem. They're seeing this, they're seeing this problem, and now really both sides are coming at big tech to try to uh, control them um, and, and, and make sure that they're doing these things because they just don't seem interested in doing it. And I will say, you know, um, you know, look, my kids are not on social media. I hope they never, maybe when they're 45, will allow it. Um, but they're not on social media, and I don't plan on them being social media, but it's not even just social media. You know, they're playing a... a, a uh, a harmless kids game on, on, on our phone for a few minutes and the ads pop up and the ads are bizarre and disturbing content sometimes. Uh, they're watching, you know, they go on YouTube and they're watching a craft video and then it recommends something, you know, maybe it's not even just harmful and terrible, but just vapid and awful nonsense. And you just get to the point where you think, you know, 
both sides are now coming after you. Do you see this, Big Tech? Do you see this? Both sides are coming to a point of agreement, a, a rare moment of bipartisanship where they think you're so terrible, they're going to do something. And when, as a person who's very skeptical of government influence in things uh, like this, or really almost everything, it's really difficult to understand why they make it so hard on parents. You know, like, these are devices that parents purchase, that parents set up, that parents pay for the internet, they pay for the devices, they pay for these services, and it's almost impossible to control the content that goes onto them. You know, I mean, I have spent the better part of the last couple of years trying to get every all this crap set up just so, I mean, I don't, I mean, I understand eventually the kids are going to see things that I don't want them to see, but like, I'm not trying to, to hasten that whole process. I'd like to control it for as long as possible. And yes, I can take my kids completely off of them, and sometimes I do. Um, but you know, at some point, uh, I mean, a lot of their schoolwork is now done on these things. So it's almost impossible to completely eliminate it. And why there isn't an easy way uh, to control this from a parental perspective, I don't know. I've signed up for services. I've had people talk me through stuff. I've had tech people look at it. You go through all this and it's almost impossible. And I fear for my, I mean, this is almost a just completely selfish point here, but I know this is coming with my kids in a few years and it's going to be a nightmare. And I don't know how I'm going to control it. And like, this is the point, like Adam Masseri uh, said, um, you know, there should be an industry body that determines the best practices. The body should receive input from society, regulators. The standards need to be high. And I believe companies like ours should have to earn some of their Section 230 protections by adhering to those standards, such as uh, verifying age. And, you know, that might be part of the, of the whole package. But like, if you, like, we're the parents. We're the people who are going to allow um, younger kids to be able to look at these devices or not. So why don't you make it easy for us? Make it e give me a freaking button that I can just press and make sure my kid's not looking at some terrible content like they were describing in these last uh, couple of he uh, hearings. There's no reason for that. And I keep thinking to myself, what is the purpose here? Why isn't it easy? And the only thing I can come up with is they don't want it to be easy. I understand that it's impossible to filter every piece of content. I get that something can slip through here and there, but it's not, that's not the problem here. The problem is these, there are very few options to be able to control the content for your kids. You have to buy outside services and, and go through hours and hours of connecting them to all the different devices and apps and, and all of that. And then it still doesn't seem to work. It's still overwhelming. And unless you're a freaking tech genius, you can't get any of it done. Why is this hard? These the people in the Senate, people that are Republicans and people who are Democrats are going to continue to come at these companies and they're going to try to do something to solve this problem. Not because government's so great, not because they probably even care about this, but because they know their constituents want it stopped. So why not make it easy? You spend so much time making sure you can recommend me the Gap Yeezy jacket, whatever the hell that is, so I can look rich in Soho with my mail date. You, can, you go through all that, that process uh, to, to serve up content that you, you think people supposedly like. Well, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't understand it. Why can't it just be nice and easy for parents to be able to control the experience for 
their kids. This is not asking too much. And I think the answer is they find it more valuable to keep their kids on these services. They know they're growing little soldiers for their stupid apps. And they know long term they're going to get people on these things and they're never going to leave. And that means more money in their pockets. And, I, you know, look, whether you think it's right or wrong, if they continue to go down this road and do not make this easy for parents to be able to control the experience for their own kids at least, what's going to wind up happening is the government is going to step in, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's the right approach or not. If they don't do it, the government's going to wind up cracking down. And I hope these uh, I hope these apps are ready for that because it's, it's going to come and it's going to come hard because the rest thunderous applause is going to be the uh, the background noise of these sorts of uh, of uh, of regulations. And, you know, the, these companies, they've had a great benefit of uh, of a free market, which the Internet largely is. But they're going to wind up, whether I like it or not. Uh, getting pushed around by the government and watch all of the the, the creative freedom and the, the money printing machine freedom they've had over the past 10 years go away. So if you happen to be a giant tech CEO watching this program, do something good for once. I'm so happy to welcome Laura Shin to the program. She's a crypto journalist, author of The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze, which is available now. Make sure you grab a copy. It's great. Uh, also, she's the host of the Unchained podcast. Be sure to subscribe to that as well. Laura, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, I, I was. I mean, I'm so glad you were able to take the time. It's such a great book. And, you know, really, like, I think the the... The history of basically Ethereum, you kind of go through, there's a little bit more to it than that, going through the beginnings of crypto and however, how we got there. But this is the story of Ethereum. If you don't, it, you know, people don't go into crypto that much. This is the second biggest cryptocurrency behind Bitcoin. Um, but it really did have a, a, a different vision and a different start. The, uh, tell us about the founder, Vitalik Buterin, and, and where he came from and how he came up with this, this vision. So Vitalik Buterin is a Russian-born Canadian, well, now I guess you would call him, uh, you know, uh, a developer, uh, a sort of <laughs> um, cryptocurrency creator. Uh, but back in 2013, he basically was actually a Bitcoin journalist. And he was traveling the world, going to these different communities around the globe that are into Bitcoin. And he was noticing that they were innovating on Bitcoin in a way where they were just adding new features. So, um, you know, Bitcoin famously, the white paper says that it's a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. And so people would just kind of like create a new blockchain with an additional feature or, you know, few features. And he thought, why can't it be more like an app store where anyone, any developer can think of a decentralized application? So, uh, you know, famously, Bitcoin is decentralized, meaning there's no company or CEO or any government or any single entity that is responsible for it. But it's just a group of loosely um, organized people around the globe that that uh run the software and make sure that the network is running. And he thought, why can't developers do similar things with other kinds of applications, just the way that, for instance, the Apple App Store has photo apps and cooking apps and financial apps and productivity apps. And so what he did was 
he developed Ethereum so that it was centered around a single programming language. And through that language, then any developer could have an idea for a decentralized application on Ethereum and upload it just the way that we do to our app stores. And so, yeah, he um, basically sent out the white paper for this idea on the day that Bitcoin crossed $1,000 for the first time. Mm. So pretty much right away, people understood there there's potential here for us to make money. And yeah, that was that was the beginning. Yeah. And some people might have seen Vitalik, you know, in, in media reports, maybe seen him online. He's, he's certainly a prominent figure there. It's it's hard to really imagine. What was he like? Nineteen years old when this happened. I mean, this is it's just fascinating to see what this has grown into from where it began. Yeah, he was nineteen at that time, and actually, what they decided to do was kind of publicly present Ethereum for the first time at a conference known as the North American Bitcoin Conference in Miami. And uh, I think, like within a couple of days after that, he finally turned twenty. <laughs> but the fact that he was so young at the time that he started Ethereum really caused a lot of the troubles early on in Ethereum because he did not really have the personal skills in order to make manage kind of like the different personalities and and other things that were going on. Yeah, this is one of the things I really took. It was interesting to see the book the way you wrote it in that, you know, it's, of course, a story about cryptocurrency, but it really you did a great job humanizing these people like I, I. in a way, I, I feel like uh, as an outside observer of, of, a, of a blockchain project, I'm thinking of just quants. Like these are people who are just all they talk about is programming language and they, they're almost robots to me in, 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 the, in, the, in the story I've created in my mind. I mean, it's interesting to see these people interact with each other. There's a personality conflicts. There's the difficulty. There's the power struggles. All the things you'd see in a, in a band or something as it formed and rose to prominence, you see in the story. Yeah, yeah. I honestly feel like pretty much the whole book, frankly, just ends up being all these different conflicts. And part of it, frankly, is because I do think Vitalik had that difficulty just asserting himself. And multiple people talked to me about how he was so conflict averse and he was so young that older people and especially people who might have been more self-motivated realized that because he could not say no, if they just hung out with him, got in his ear, he would not be able to say, you know, I don't agree with you. And so eventually they would get their way. And a lot of people basically try to do that. And this is why you will see um, there are multiple instances in the book where in a group discussion, Vitalik will come in and he'll have these ideas. And then that's not what gets decided. Other people kind of have more influence and they sort of, um, yeah, determine what those decisions will end up being. I think everybody in their business life has had a couple of these people where you know, they are manipulating the situation and they're trying to put influence on people. It seemed like almost everybody around Vitalik had uh, these sort of instincts. And it, I, as I was thinking about it, you know, I got into, you know, Ethereum pretty, I think, relatively early on, mainly out of luck because of a, of a, a friend's advice. Uh, but I think, honestly, if I had known what was going on behind the scenes, I wouldn't I wouldn't have wanted to have been involved with it. I mean, it, it felt it, reading your book, it feels these are very smart people, but it was really out of control there for a while. It was. I mean, there were so many travails. You know, when I went to, I mean, when I went to write the book, I had been covering crypto for, I think, 
like almost four years. And even I did not know half of the stuff, even even like a quarter of the stuff that I uncovered for the book. So, you know, I mean, there were just, um, yeah, lots of power struggles around things like titles or how much they should pay themselves or about who should be the leader of the foundation or how the foundation should be run or even before they established the foundation, whether or not they should establish a corporate entity or a nonprofit. I mean, they're just over and over and over and over again, these these conflicts just um, go on. And even this thing about how much they should be paid, I think they settled it, you know, in the spring of one year. And then in the summer of the following year, it came up again and caused a big <laughs> stir on Reddit. So even today, I get people tweeting at me about these kinds of things. So yes, these conflicts basically have kind of uh, stuck with Ethereum. And there, a lot of them are still going. I mean, you get the sense, you could tell, you've talked You talked to so many of these people, seemingly multiple times. Uh, I can't even imagine how much work you put into this thing. But you can tell yeah. they're still fighting these battles multiple years later to you. Uh, and you're just in the middle trying to sort it out. I mean, that could not have been easy to do. Oh, yeah. I interviewed more than 200 people. And, you know, when you have this kind of decentralized story, that's that's a challenge in itself. You know, as you probably know, at the beginning of the book, I have this list of characters and it's 50 people long. And this is after I cut it down. (laughs) So there were there were, you know, other people that I interviewed or that were involved that, yeah, I did not mention them. But uh, that did lead to a lot of work where when people say things and they contradict other people, then I would need to try to get corroborating evidence, something that was contemporaneous, or I would just go around to many of the other people and try to, you know, suss out like what is, um, you know, as best as I can tell, the most accurate version of what happened back then. But you're right. Years later, people people were still litigating certain points with me. Mm. It really is fascinating. Um, it, let me go to a couple of the, the big uh, points in the book. There, the Dow hack is sort of a somewhat, if you're in these circles, you, you probably have heard of it, but you really go through, I mean, bit by bit, exactly how this happens. And we don't need to go into all the technical details. But what I, what I thought was pretty interesting about this was there, and this I think happens in a lot of crypto companies, but it happened, or crypto projects, but a lot of companies as well, where it's the, we start with this sort of utopian vision. And as that utopian vision develops and it gets furthered, there's this, I, there's this pragmatic reality that gets in the way. And there's this giant hack happens with Ethereum relatively early on. And it's not actually Ethereum, it's a separate sort of project, but it, 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 was a, it would have been a huge effect to, with Ethereum. And they had to decide, our utopian vision that this thing just runs on its own and we never touch it, is butting up against the reality that this project is going to lose a lot of reputation if we just allow all this money to get stolen. Can you kind of give us a walkthrough of this story and how it played out? Yes. So the DAO hack is the hack of something called the DAO, spelled D-A-O, which stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And in this particular case, it really was structured as a decentralized venture fund. And the way that I describe it in the book to understand the significance is that so the DAO was created um, when Ethereum was maybe like nine months old or so. So it wasn't like the Ethereum of today where we have DeFi and NFTs and many other DAOs and all kinds of things happening on Ethereum. But the DAO really was like the only thing that people were interested in on Ethereum at that time. So the way I describe it in the book is it was as if you had the App Store and then this was the most popular application and the App Store barely had anything else. Hmm. So if the DAO became so popular, it actually garnered 15% of all ETH. 
uh, meaning that 15% of all the youth in, existent, in existence went into crowdfunding for this DAO. And it was so popular that it actually became the highest crowdfunded project in history, mm-hmm. even when you include things, you know, like normal Kickstarters. Wow. So it was hugely important. And yes, it generated a, an existential crisis for Ethereum. Yeah. And, and so it, it was fascinating to watch without, I mean, there's, there's, you have so much great detail in the book and I, and I don't want to ruin it, but it, it was interesting in that they basically eventually decided to basically roll back uh, Ethereum to before the hack in a way. And there were all these questions as to whether they were essentially committing theft of the, on their own, um, they, were th- whether they were hacking. There was a, a white hat group uh, I- involved here trying to, we were the good guys, we're doing it the right way. And there were a lot of people who said, you know what, you can't step in, you can't stop this, you can't touch it, you have to let it go. That's the vision of Ethereum. Yeah, yeah. So actually, just one minor correction, which is that so in Bitcoin, in order to undo something like the DAO, yes, you would have to kind of roll back the chain, meaning Mm -hmm. all the subsequent transactions would get undone. But in Ethereum, they were able to do it in this very surgical way where they just kind of airlifted the money out of the DAO and put it in something called the withdrawal contract so that anybody who had bought DAO tokens could send the DAO tokens in and receive their Ether back. But yes, this caused a huge controversy because you know, I saw some chat logs where people were saying, look, this is a problem with the DAO, not Ethereum. Ethereum worked as intended. And they were also saying things like, um, if you show that you're able to kind of uh, have this control of Ethereum, that a centralized entity can have control over Ethereum, then regulators are going to come in and Mm -hmm. it's going to have consequences for blockchains. In the end, actually, what was surprising is that um, about a year or, yeah, a a year later, um, some regulators did come out. They didn't actually talk too much about, you know, whether or not kind of undoing that hack was a good idea. But what they did say was that since everybody got their money back, that they weren't going to pursue any action uh, for a different infraction. So that was just sort of fascinating that in the end, actually, because they did basically return people's money uh, the, the SEC in this case decided not to pursue an enforcement action. Right, really is fascinating, and it's it's edge of your seat as they're trying to figure out what to do as you go through this. Um, there's also other stories that are just you know I, I I found it interesting to see all of the entrepreneurial spirit that was involved in this. Um, you tell the story of of my Ether wallet in here. And I thought this was really fascinating about how people who aren't necessarily in the original project were able to kind of just build on it and and make it better. It really was, in, in a way, it, it hit that decentralized spirit, I think, in a way that was kind of encouraging and, and shows maybe a bright future for, for all of these projects. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, by the end, I to my mind, it's quite clear that Ethereum at that point is pretty decentralized. You have all these different people that are working on all different kinds of things. Uh, in the crypto world, you will often hear people say that, Um, If you compare it to something like gold, gold is this commodity where it, um, you know, it it has an industry of centralized companies working around it, but there's no one central gold corporation that is controlling gold. And I would actually say the same for Ethereum. I do know some people say, oh, the Ethereum Foundation controls things. But I can tell you right now, um, (laughs) because of many incidents that have happened that happened in the book, it's very clear Ethereum Foundation does not control 
uh, Ethereum. And that's how this evil twin of Ethereum that uh, is called Ethereum Classic ended up uh, being created because, yes, the Ethereum Foundation could not stop that. So um, I agree with you. Uh, you know, the friends who started my Ether Wallet were just, frankly, some young uh, 20-somethings who were really into Ethereum and just had an idea of how to use it better. So they created something that then became the most widely used wallet for the initial coin offering craze. Mm, it really is crazy. Um, all right, so, uh, and all this is in the book, and you have so many, so many, we can't go through all of it because there's just so much stuff. But uh, what's fascinating about it is most of the stuff we've talked about here, Ethereum's at like $10, right? You know, now it's 3000 uh, You know, there, it's, a, it's, you know, a massive, massive, massive world. And here you have Vitalik, who starts this when he's 19 years old. He's, you know, now rich beyond all imagination, but he doesn't live like a rock star. He's not that guy at all. Who is he and what is he, how does he want this story to end? Yeah, you know, Vitalik is in a way, a somewhat difficult person to know because he's not a very talkative person. So, so much of our interviews would be me asking him a question and then him giving like a one word or one <laughs> sentence answer and then me just pouncing on whatever he said to ask him another question on that. And, you know, a lot of it was like that. But, you know, what I came away with is that he's actually quite a pure and idealistic. And in many ways, especially early on in the book, he was a very naive individual. Um, you know, obviously, I do feel that my book ended up being a coming of age story for Vitalik, which I did not anticipate when I went to write the book. But you know, when, once I had the material, I realized that is what had transpired in those years. And I still feel that, you know, a lot of the reason that he kind of was able to be manipulated early on is because he's so pure that he cannot see when people have bad intent. He just can't even conceive of that. And it took him a while to even figure that out. And I think people had to frankly explain that kind of thing to him. So, you know, now he's definitely more mature. I think he has an awareness that people can be like that. But yeah, he definitely um, still, I think, is that kind of idealistic and pure person. But in that way, I actually also think he's quite evolved because he is definitely more selfless than other people that have been involved in the Ethereum project. And frankly, that's a pretty rare trait in the cryptocurrency world. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. And almost every area of, of the world I've found. Uh, Laura Shin, she's the author of The Crypt Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze. This is like the authoritative story of, uh, of, of Ethereum. And if you're interested in this at all, I can't recommend it enough. She's also the host of the Unchained podcast. You should definitely check that out as well. Laura, thanks so much for coming on the program. I appreciate it. You know, the White House had a little problem on their hands. No one believes anything that they say. And this is an issue for any White House. You want to control the public opinion just a little bit. You hope that your leaders and your spokespeople will go out there and convince people of whatever your spin is of the issue. But inflation's a funny thing. Inflation's difficult to spin. Inflation is a really tough thing to control because people notice it. When the prices go up at the gas pump, they can't help but see it Back, even when they're not even stop, stopping for gas, they're passing the signs all the time. And when they have to fill up, and it used to be $40, and now it's 60 and now it's 70 and now it's 80 they tend to notice. When they go grocery shopping, and they're spending 20 30 40% more on those groceries, they tend to notice. You can't tell them the money they're giving to those stores, to the gas stations, uh, isn't real money. There's no way to control that. You can't spin your way out of it. But we can't put it past the White House to at least try, can we? The White House decided to drag a bunch of weirdo TikTokers 
uh, to the White House to try to convince them to, I guess, pitch to their TikTok and Instagram audiences uh, the real facts about oil prices. And you'll be surprised to hear the real facts about oil prices and gas prices are that there's absolutely no fault of the of the Biden administration. The Biden administration has no control over this. The Biden administration has not contributed to it in any way. In fact, all this does is prove that the Biden administration has been right the entire time. So, yes, a bunch of TikTokers went in there and decided to come out on the other side and approach their audiences and say a bunch of stuff and kind of regurgitate what they heard in the White House. And there's a reason why, yes, we can sit here and just make fun of TikTokers all day, and we shall. But there's a bigger point here. Here is uh, Ellie Zeiler. She's apparently a TikToker, and she's talking to you about the truth about gas prices. I had the opportunity to ask the White House why gas down the street is $7, and here's what they said. The obvious reason, we're getting out of a two-year pandemic. When use goes up, price goes up. Obviously. But the call was predominantly about Ukraine and Russia, so how does that relate? Russia is one of the top three producers of oil, and it is actually their number one revenue source. Now, with Putin starting this horrific fight between Ukraine and Russia, nobody wants to work with him and do international trade. So with people being scared of war and limited resources, prices are bound to go up as well. Now, you might say that was kind of, you know, it wasn't a great analysis of the global oil markets. But I will say she's better than Jen Psaki. You know, I mean, that was a better pitch than anything Jen Psaki's done over the past few months. Uh, I like the fact that really can, she can only really remember one sentence of, at a time. The whole I want to do this show that way. I want to record one sentence at a time and then just cut. And so the entire show is just me remembering one sentence. I say it and then you guys go through and you edit the whole show up. It'll be the easiest thing in the world. I love that approach. Uh, Again, like, did she seem like she had internalized any of that information or was she just regurgitating? You tell me. Of course, there's really smart, sarcastic people as well that went to the TikTok conference and came out on the other other side telling you uh, how you should feel about the war between Ukraine and, and Russia. Every single day you see a new theory about why Biden wants the gas prices up and how it's just to control us or something. And that Putin never invaded with Trump around, even though Putin did invade plenty of countries while Trump was around. I mean, I guess Syria didn't exist. Mm. I mean, when you swear, it makes it so much more powerful. That's not really what happened with Syria. Just um, we can go back and review that history uh, just a little bit. Are there a lot of people having I mean, I, I, I don't do people get influenced by this stuff? I don't know. Maybe it works. We are, if it does, we are a really dumb society. And I don't put that past our society, honestly, at this point. Some of this at least made some sense. I want to give you another clip. Um, This is a guy, I guess, who's on TikTok screaming at Vladimir Putin. Um, It's one of the strangest things I've ever seen in my life. No phone, no texting, no writing, nobody telling me what to say. This from the brain, from the heart, from the soul, from the streets. I'm a bitch from the streets. It's a good point. <laughs> I mean, when you say it that way, it really hits home. And I'm, I'm sure Vladimir uh, was uh, probably going to change. He's probably pulling out troops right now after seeing that video. Uh, This is all, of course, to serve this bizarre Putin gas price narrative. And look, as we've said, 
And, you know, you don't like Joe Biden. I know you don't. You're probably watching the show. You probably don't like Joe Biden. You know what I've said to you? Recently, the large cost uh, increase in, in gas prices has been because of the war with Russia and Ukraine. Now, those prices have fallen back down a little bit. Uh, but that didn't you, Ukraine and Russia had nothing to do with the previous, you know, eight, you know, 16 months of increases. It had nothing to do with all the policies that we went through earlier this week uh, when we showed all the different things that Biden has done to make the lives of oil companies and fossil fuel companies more difficult. This is not a secret. It's literally something he ran on. He campaigned on making life difficult for these companies so that we can get more green and all the nonsense that's associated with that. This is not a secret. This isn't something I'm making up. It's something he bragged about in the Democratic primary the entire time. And then he came in and he signed a bunch of executive orders on day one to make sure this outcome eventually happened. Now, look, the best look at this is to say that they want to eventually get to some green world where we won't be polluting and blah, 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 blah. And if we lower prices too much, that is going to get deeper and deeper in the future. And as you know, our greatest existential threat is global warming. So we have to stop that. That's why we maybe need a short term solution to back off these high gas prices. But long term, this is not something they hate. This is something that Obama talked openly about as he was running for president, that they want to make these prices go higher. They want to put coal companies out of business. They bragged about this in their primaries, and now they're acting as if it's a crazy, unfair, racist assault to bring it up now. Well, this is the result of of policies like this. Now, look. Vladimir Putin invading uh, Ukraine makes this worse. It does. And it's not entirely Joe Biden's fault. Did he implement policies that made that more likely? Yes, we went over that as well. But I don't think it was his intent for that to happen. Uh, The bottom line, though, is it did happen and it is affecting all of us. And you can't get out of it. You can't spin your way out of this. It's just not possible. And the, the problem here is Dragging a bunch of uh, TikTok stars to the White House and then having them regurgitate this stuff to their audiences is such a cynical thing to do. You're trying to you're trying to change the opinion of people who don't know what they're talking about. You're trying to change the, the, the view of people who obviously don't look at this stuff every day. You're trying to manipulate a vulnerable audience who can who might be affected by your lies. You know people who follow this stuff on a day-to-day basis aren't going to fall for this crap. So instead, you go to TikTok and you try to convince people who have never thought about it for more than five seconds. Hey, maybe if you're the first five seconds they've heard about this issue, then maybe they'll believe you. That is incredibly cynical, and it's not something the United States government should be involved in in any way. Now, if you're the Democratic Party and you want to drag some people in and try to inform them what to tell their TikTok audiences, I have no problem with it. They're going to lie a lot, and I'll have a problem with that. But the same thing with the Republican Party. You want to drag in people uh, to uh, the Republican Party headquarters and tell them what you think the spin should be on Biden. I guess you can go for that. But the, the federal government should have no role in this. This is bordering, if not crossing the line, into propaganda, and we shouldn't be doing it. It's a bad idea, and it doesn't stop here. Uh, we go back. If you go back a long time, you'll see Woodrow Wilson, his uh, Committee on Public Information. 
We've talked about that in the past, mainly on radio, uh, because obviously whenever Woodrow Wilson is brought up, uh, you know Glenn's going to be around. Of course, he's on this show. Obviously, he's just he appears. I bring up Woodrow Wilson. Glenn Beck's coming on later. Uh, but, you know, this is a was a real problem. They went around trying to convince people to get into the war. And it was a propaganda effort. That's what propaganda is. But it doesn't stop there. It also stops with ad- or starts with advertising. Advertising is something the United States government should not be involved in. Now, if you are a company, let's say like Pfizer, and you want to say, hey, you know what? Our vaccines are awesome. You should take them. I have no problem with that. Pfizer should advertise their product, just like Burger King should advertise their product. But the federal government should not be involved spending your tax dollars to advertise people come get what they say is a very helpful shot. That is not something the, 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 uh, the government should be involved in. Let me give you an example of it. We all need a boost from time to time. Yeah. Our family, our crew. Yeah, and now there's a boost out. for People each of us you. that also helps everyone we're close to yeah. wherever we are. It's cold out. Where if you're 12 plus and vaccinated, your COVID oh, booster makes the, your protection even stronger. You'll do sit up better. If including you get against Omicron. Yeah. Your hair will it's turn a new year a with a stronger way to help us tackle COVID. All right. Look, you know, you know my feeling on vaccines. I'm not against them at all. But should the government be advertising them? And honestly, I, I add this as well. Should Pfizer uh, be advertising them on news programming? I mean, if you're going to come out and you're going to say, here are the facts about the vaccine, they probably shouldn't be advertising on your show that day. I mean, that's just uh, that's just a minor thing. But the government should not be convincing people to do this. Let me give you another example. A good old friends at healthcare.gov. Take care of your joy. Yeah. Roller skating. Your hopes. And your health. Wear clothing that's too large. Go to healthcare.gov yeah. to shop for quality plans that are right for you. Yeah. New law, lower prices. More people qualify at healthcare.gov. I mean, maybe you don't need healthcare.gov if you wouldn't roller skate so dangerously. I mean, it seems like it could cause some serious injuries. Uh, again, if you need healthcare and you're thinking to yourself, I don't have health insurance. My guess is, you know, about healthcare.gov at this point. Do we really need to be advertising it? Is it a good idea to advertise it? When we have a program that the United States develops to supposedly help people who don't have health care, though I have massive problems with that program, should we be spending even more money to tell people to get on it so we can spend even more money when they sign up? Should we need to convince people to take free money for health care? Does that make sense? How about food stamps? I managed a phone store for about four years. The family I worked for, they ended up selling the business, so my hours were cut dramatically. I had a young child, so I kind of thought, you know, what's the best route for me at this point? Jamie started with us in the CNA program, and she has just been phenomenal to work with along the way, and it is just so great to see her progression. People that come into our center want to work. It's not that we don't want to do anything and we want food assistance because we want to sit at home. We just need to be able to feed our families while we're trying to do better for ourselves, too. You know, I, uh, who, who thinks that? Look, if you're hungry and your family needs food, you're probably going to go get food stamps or what they call, I guess, SNAP now. Uh, you need to do that. You need to do it. You know, the program exists. 
If you need food, you're probably going to go take advantage of that program. Do we need to be cutting ads to convince more people? Like, hey, maybe you really do need food. Do you think people don't know that they need food? Is that really a concern? Is there ever a reason to run an ad to convince people that, for a, that they need to come sign up for a government program that's going to give them free things? I just don't think that that's a need. I mean, we should only be uh, designing these programs, if we're going to have them, to people who absolutely desperately need them. And instead, we're trying to convince more people to get on who are somehow surviving it with other means. And we're just trying to say, hey, why don't you come over here? We'll give you free stuff instead. And this one, all these I think you probably agree with. You probably don't think we should be advertising uh, pr- uh, these, these products. But let me give you one that you might not agree with here. Because this one is, I, I don't think should happen either. Here is a commercial for the U.S. Army. Code Fighter. You look like you're in the Matrix. Virus Hunter. Lasers. Special effects. Wavelength. Yes. That guy's cutting. He's playing Fruit Ninja, I think. Yes. You can build buildings in the Army, too. That's right. Start here. Join the U.S. Army. Now, look, you know uh, me. I really appreciate the Army and our armed services, and I value what they do a lot more than people on the left do. I guarantee you that. But here's the thing. I don't know that it's a good idea to advertise uh, even the military. An advertisement is in and of itself a favorable look at a product or a service. You know, you don't you don't get you don't often get Dunkin' Donuts. We've got a new sausage, egg and cheese sandwich. And I'll tell you, it's delicious. It probably will kill you if you eat too many of them, though. Uh, Watch your cholesterol. Maybe only come here once in a while. Dunkin' Donuts. That doesn't happen. Right. Dunkin' Donuts tells you it's freaking delicious. So you go in there and you have to be able to internalize a one sided positive message and then try to figure out for yourself whether you should take part in that service. You know, whether it's vaccines, whether it is Obamacare, whether it's food stamps, whether it's uh, even the U.S. military, your decision, no part of that decision should be made because you saw a commercial on TV. Look, the truth is that propaganda from our government is not something we should accept in any form. Propaganda is the dissemination of information, facts, arguments, rumors, half-truths, or lies to influence public opinion. We are right to criticize it when it happens in Russia, and we should not aspire to be more like Russia. Sure, there is a pretty clear difference between advertising Obamacare or food stamps and for the allegation that, you know, Jewish Ukrainians are actually secret Nazis. But there's probably a difference between a tiny bit and a giant dose of heroin, too. That doesn't mean you should tie off and give it a whirl. Our government should never spend a dollar to advertise anything ever. I want a constitutional amendment. No more government commercials. No vaccines, no matter how wonderful they may be. No Obamacare. If you need health insurance, you should be able to track it down without a commercial. Not food stamps either. I'm pretty sure if you're going to go hungry, you're going to figure out that food stamps exist. And honestly, not even the military. If you're going to risk your life for this country, that is a decision, and it's a laudable decision. That should be made with self-reflection and consultation with your family and friends and faith, not influenced by a splashy production in the middle of the third quarter of the Rose Bowl. 
Furthermore, our government should not be collecting a bunch of 18-year-old dunces famous for lip-syncing and doing Kardashian dialogue while jiggling in short shorts. That's a bad idea. We shouldn't be telling them to go out there and pitch propaganda about the nuances of the global oil markets on an app controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. This is not something I should need to say.